0: This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains, and globalization, and the effects these have had on our life, our work, and our travel over recent times. In today's program, I'm joined again by my colleagues from the Supply Chain Special Interest Group of the Society for the Advancement of Consulting to review some of the events that have impacted supply chains during 2022, and how these events sit within the context of the overarching long-term trends that are driving supply chain strategies such as demographics, technology, and the energy transition, among others. So uh, joining me today, we have uh, Diane Garcia, uh, president of Lorraine Consulting, based in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome, Diane.
1: Good morning. Hi, Patrick.
0: Very welcome, Diane. And Lisa Anderson, president of LMA Consulting, joining us from Los Angeles metro area in California. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. Glad to be here. So, Lisa, I might turn to you first to talk about how pandemic and war sit within the context of demographic change and technology advance, and how all of this is kind of affecting the prospects of businesses and supply chains in in the US now, I guess, specifically, but maybe um, internationally as well. I kind of, this question came to me. I was listening to a a podcast. I'm a bit of a, a history nerd. So, I listened to these historical podcast. And these guys were talking about the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, a naval battle that was fought between the British on one side under Admiral Nelson and the French and their reluctant Spanish allies on the other side under Admiral Villeneuve. But it turns out that The technology of the British ships, of their guns, and very importantly, of their organisational processes on board the ships were far superior to their adversaries. And the Spanish um, were severely demographically challenged at the time in terms of manpower because they were bringing diseases back into Spain from their colonies in the New World. So they had a pandemic or an epidemic, if you like. And right at the time of the battle, there was a, a, an epidemic raging in southern Spain uh, of yellow fever. So they couldn't get the men to, to man the ships in essence. So today, today now we have all of these ingredients again, we have war, we have pandemic, we have technological process change, and we have a shortage of people. So, uh, Lisa, uh, with that kind of preamble, in, in the US today, how are all of these factors interacting and, and shaping what businesses are doing and are going to be doing over the next 12 to 18 months?
2: Well, that is quite the question <laughs> that you bring up there. I would say that uh, certainly the uh, the war that's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the uh, the impacts of the pandemic, the concerns about China and Taiwan, uh, all of this turmoil, is definitely going to impact uh, supply chains uh, for sure. In the United States, uh, they're going to need to be bringing. A, most of uh, most executives are looking at reshoring, nearshoring. Um, which is also being called friendly shoring these days uh, because we really. Give give me that again. You
0: said reshoring, nearshoring, and friendly shoring.
2: Correct. So friendly shoring is in essence nearshoring, but being careful about who it is that you're bringing it, you know, even if you're bringing it closer to to where your customers are, you need to be making sure that, it's a friendly country to yeah. so, uh, so
0: if you're American, you wouldn't be going to Venezuela or Nicaragua, for example.
2: Uh, yes, you would hope not. <laughs> I mean, right now, I know that uh, the u s is looking at uh, Venezuela when it comes to oil, but we really really should not be. so uh, I know that um it, what I think's gonna happen though, is is that that we're gonna be um you know, definitely bringing back. Uh, reshoring is on the rise and it's definitely going to be on the rise for, uh, items related to national security, for healthcare products, uh, for, uh, food and, uh, you know, and really Uh, just smart executives overall.
0: Sorry, uh, computer chip production, I guess there are movements in that space as well, right?
2: Yeah. Yep. Definitely. There's computer chip, uh, computer chip uh several computer chip factories that are coming back uh to the u.s uh there's expansion in arizona expansion in texas um and you know really though we're going to need more than what's already happening Mm. uh the u.s uh is going to have to be really aggressive with everything that's going on in the world right now because there's uh china and russia combined have uh you know, a lot of natural resources, and there's just a lot of risk. So we really need to be aggressive. And the pandemic has showed us that, um, you know, we really don't have the backups uh, in place that we, you know, that we thought we did, if you will, or at least not over, you know, overall, it was um, much, much more concerning <laughs> in terms yeah. of our ability to, uh, um and this this is this has been true across the world but basically we really need to take more control is really the theme
0: yeah so it seemed like uh, in the years before the the pandemic although the uh, the kind of decoupling from china probably even started in in obama's time so i mean it was it was there already there were there were issues there but we kind of lived in a in from a supply chain perspective we lived in a world where things were connected internationally and we and things were working well and we all kind of felt that we could get what we needed because it was in everybody's interest to keep the whole thing running and then all of a sudden it started to change and we saw people ripping ripping things up um whether it was Due to political change, say in the in the US with when Trump came in, or in the U, in the UK with with Brexit, and then we saw she in in China, and all of these geopolitical changes started having an effect on on supply chains, and we kind of started to realize they weren't working. And then we were hit with the pandemic, and we saw they really weren't working. Is that would you concur with that kind of view?
2: Yeah, I think that we. Uh... We yes, obviously the uh, the tariffs that started to come about during Trump's time made people start to think about what they were doing. Uh, Really, if you looked at the total cost, um, adding up all of the you know the intellectual property property that was being stolen, you know the uh, inventory costs, and you know like the fact that labor costs were rising. in Asia and in China specifically, if you added it all up, basically folks were on non-commodity products, you know, already made sense to bring production back. The The issue really was that there was so much capital investment and you aren't going to get your capital investment back, if you will. I mean, if you have a large enough customer base, you're going to serve China for China, which is, you know, what they were saying, how they were terming things, uh, last week at a uh, healthcare conference they were talking about china for china india for india which basically means each country you can certainly leave production in in you know asian countries to serve that region of the world but you basically would need to you know if you if you don't have production let's say in the uh, us market latin america um you know, Mexico or somewhere, uh, that's closer to the customers that are in North America and South America, you, you're going to have to, you know, uh, start it up. That's why there's so much conversation about reshoring and nearshoring. Um, uh, so basically, you know, each, each country, um, or region, uh, is going to need to, is going to need to take more control and serve itself if they wish to have, um, Success, because there's so much also going on. You brought up the pandemic, and the pandemic is has created supply chain disruption everywhere. And you know, pretty much, we've learned that we're a system of systems, uh, which, which in essence means that um, you know every pe- every element of the supply chain is impacted by all the other elements of the supply chain. So there's no way, no way to control all of those elements. And that again, another reason why folks are are you know thinking they need to uh, take better control over what's going on in their in their uh, supply chain, and are largely moving are moving it and and taking control one way or another, partnering with somebody or something.
0: So, from a U.S. perspective, then reshoring or or friendly shoring, what uh, countries do you think in in your neighborhood are likely to benefit from that in the coming years?
2: Well, definitely Mexico. I mean, they're, they're, you know, we put together an agreement with Mexico and Canada uh, when Trump uh, was in office that um, improved upon the trade relations that we uh, already had. Um, and that's for sure. Actually, we've always traded with Mexico because, of course, know generally speaking their labor is less expensive so you know we can we can do well what what I really see is is we're gonna need to be trading a lot more with Canada as well. So Mexico and Canada for sure, although Mexico's already started. Um and, and it's been ramping up for quite some time. Uh but we need to really emphasize it. And then also Latin America. So, you know, it depends on the industry and the, pro- and the product. Some countries specialize in, you know, different types of products. For example, in this uh, healthcare products conference, I-, I actually led a panel about reshoring, or I didn't lead the panel. I was on a panel about reshoring and uh, nearshoring, if you will. And uh, Costa Rica Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dominican Republic and Mexico, it, it in a different order. Mexico is number one. Costa Rica is a close, number two, and the Dominican Republic was number three in terms of medical like devices. Let's say, but mm-hmm. you know that's that's just one product.
0: Yeah, so there's going to be a growing interest in all things Latin American then in in American business over coming years.
2: Right. Yep. There sure should should be, and of course that's the concern about China as well. Although I don't, you don't know, want to absorb all the uh, time here but china is absolutely making moves on latin america as well and we better get our act together and ensure that uh you know that we deal with that because there's a lot of risk when it comes to china especially these days 93.9
0: dublin south fm diane in the u.s as in lots of other places, so I'm not picking on the U.S. here, but it's just that you—that's just where, this is where you are. So in the U.S., inflation has has risen sharply, and it seems to have kind of embedded itself in the in the economy. And the Fed, in in response, has increased interest rates aggressively, and and the dollar has has risen. So how is this impacting um what businesses are doing now and over the next year or so as as regards investment and uh, recruitment in in America?
1: Well, like you said, Patrick, uh, inflation is on the rise and has been on the rise. So the businesses and clients that I work with are are feeling the inflation rise, um, mainly because, you know, everything is just more expensive. So managing inventories, holding talent, recruiting talent, uh, you know, the supply chain issues that we've been seeing. Uh, I know gas and oil prices are starting to uh, decline as compared to the Pretty crazy prices that we saw over the last uh, year or so, but you know, just everything is over overall more expensive. So these companies and businesses have to think about you know long term decisions and and how do you really survive and, and remain profitable. Um, so th- I know that my clients I work with are are just work, worrying about you know what's going to happen long term and and uh, you know how do you make sure that you can sustain your supply chain and and, uh, cont- and pr- retain your talent.
0: Yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, when the dollar rises, I guess two things happen. Your exports become more expensive. But I don't think America worries too much about that because it does so much business internally. But your imports get cheaper, right? So therefore, your, your inputs and if you're kind of reshoring stuff to these Latin American countries, that's probably going to favor America, would you think?
1: Oh, i i would agree and and as lisa mentioned um you know what i'm seeing is the same same behaviors that reshoring nearshoring trying to shorten your supply chains and and trying to secure secure your supply because things have been um you know in a lot of turmoil in the last you know couple years and and we continue to see uh, or at least we can envision uh Additional turmoil to to continue on. So, trying to sustain these uh, supply chains and, and making sure that you have what you need uh, in terms of raw materials. It's like you said, it's uh, it's very key in, on the on the minds of executives today.
0: Yeah, it's 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 curious that some of the short term events are very challenging, having to reconfigure your your supply chains and having to go through inflation and so on. But I think if you kind of look at it long term, America seems to be in a, quite a strong position because you have your own energy. You have mm-hmm. the um, the global currency. You're importing deflation. Um, and Granted, you, you might have some issues with exports, but then you're also going to be able to use the strong dollar to invest in in other places so um, all in all it's strange how the the short term seems to be very negative but the longer term looks like it might be quite favorable and i i know lisa you've been you've been saying around the place i've heard you say this that uh ironically this is probably the best of times is is that why you're saying it or do you have some other thought as to why you think this might be the best of times
2: uh, well, I do agree with you. I think that it's interesting. You know, uh, there's a lot of risk right now. However, you're right. Uh, when when positioned against the rest of the world, um, the U.S. does have vast capacity when it comes to oil and gas production. It, it's easy to get caught up in the fact that the current political environment is is not allowing that to happen. However, that can change quickly. Um, and, uh, but the reason that I am, uh, saying that I think it could be the uh, best time, if, if you will, for a company that is forward thinking, uh, is because I think that, you know, it's similar to the, uh, great depression in a way, because there's so much turmoil throughout the world. There is, um, you know, there's a great resignation going on right now where we have a lot of folks who are retiring. Uh, companies are, um, you know, selling off and getting absorbed. So I just think there's a lot of volatility, mm. right? I guess you could say. Uh, there's going to be a reshaping of supply chains, folks coming, you know, uh, re- returning um, to, uh, you know, closer to their customers, if you will. And then from the US point of view, um, as much as not every group likes manufacturing manufacturing certainly creates jobs to your point. So there's, there's um, I think that the main reason though, although though all those are good as well, is, is just that because there's so much volatility and, and there's going to be so much turmoil. Um, I think that the companies that invest and are willing to take that risk and, and, you know, they're going to have to invest if you will, in order to, uh, in order to bring production closer, because even if they outsource, they're going to have to probably invest with the partner or do something uh, to uh, to make all that happen. Uh, if they're thinking ahead, I think that they have they'll have more opportunity now to innovate and to uh, you know take market share and, and leapfrog the competition. Because I think the competition is pretty concerned if you will about everything that's going on and they're thinking about cutting costs and, and they're, you know, thinking like, how will I weather the storm? Um, or maybe do I even want to weather the storm because, you know, they're getting closer to retirement age. And so, you know, with, uh, basically they'll have, there'll be an opportunity, uh, to, um, to succeed. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's just the U.S. I think, you know, anyone who's thinking forward, um, and uh, during this time, we'll have have an opportunity. But to your point, the U.S. absolutely does have um, energy, whereas like, for example, Europe certainly mm. does, you know, mm. doesn't. I mean, we've we have energy policies that are well, we have. Negative policies considering energy currently, but we but we didn't. We were actually energy independent a couple of years ago. So we could get back there.
0: Yeah. And energy be,
2: is a yeah. huge, huge issue uh in the world today.
0: Yeah, you can be you can be energy um independent at will almost. And that's, that's what kind of differentiates yeah. you from, from Europe. In Europe, we're kind of stuck. I think actually there's going to be huge innovation in renewables and um, alternative energy uh, in Europe because we don't have any option and um, because we you know we don't have the oil and the, and the, and the gas that that, that we need um, but we have lots of wind we have lots of coasts we have lots of sunshine so I think there's going to be a big push forward in renewable technologies in in, in Europe and it could be it could be, um, a differentiator for Europe in, in the long run, we'll, we'll see I, yeah. I
2: just- you know, Patrick, with that topic, I just wanted to throw out there that uh, Diane and I heard last week that the um, oil and gas companies, in the US anyway are investing more in renewables and um, that, that um, industry than uh, any other, so I think that you're absolutely right, I mean just because we can be um, uh, you know Independent, we also, I think, have the opportunity to, um, uh, you know, to uh, leap forward in the renewables space as well. Uh, you know, in addition to uh, Europe, from that point of view. So I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity there as well.
0: Yeah. I might just turn our attention, uh, the three of us for a minute, to the other big economic power on the world uh, stage. So um, President Xi in China has had himself selected for a a third five-year term, uh, which is unusual. So his predecessor, Hu Jintao, had two five-year terms and then voluntarily stepped aside and Xi came in. So Xi has had two, but he's not stepping aside. He's he's, He's got a third and um, he's basically filled the power structures below him with people who are his supporters. So it doesn't look like he's going to brook any any dissents um, there. And it seems that um, the, the economy there seems to be kind of closing in more on itself. And we have these ongoing kind of travel restrictions that are ostensibly um, to do with COVID uh, restrictions. But they, they seem to be kind of getting seduced by this idea, which China has been through various points over its history to kind of look in on itself and sever uh, connections with the outside world. So um, what, what would be your your, your own view, uh, Diane, on what China is, is doing and how that's going to affect supply chains um, within China and between China and the developed economies in the West and America and uh, Australia and Europe and so on?
1: Well, I think we we've been talking about it here. I think China has, you know, is going to continue to um, isolate in ways, and uh, as far as supply chains go, uh, trying to, uh, I guess, uh, benefit or focus in on what benefits. Like Lisa used the term, "China for China." So, what suppliers and what industries will will stay within China are are, um, I guess, continuing on, or will continue on, and I think companies are realizing that. What do they do to secure, or how do they maybe continue to partner with, with China, but more so probably how do they leave a lot of those U.S. supply chains? Perhaps are they leaving the region so that they can secure their their supply in that area? But I think it'll continue to become a problem and remain a problem for uh, for those who are you know, looking to secure their inventories.
0: Yeah. Uh, Lisa, I think you had a, you had a question for me. Is that right about what's going on on this side of the water?
2: Uh, yes, that's correct. I wanted to find out what you thought about uh the um the recent uh, turmoil in the UK and how that uh, might relate to their, you know to supply chains and our future uh in the U- in the uh uh in the in Europe.
0: Yeah, um it, it has been quite um in a way shocking the the the, the political instability in a country like the United Kingdom that has a reputation, or had a reputation over the years, for being very kind of pro- pragmatic and um, um, practical and, and serious and so on. But I guess in in, in a way, if you want to, we want to take a kind of a positive view on it. It seems that their political system is indeed working. Um, and they seem to have made a decision now. Literally, we're, we're recording this, and literally as we were recording this, it was announced who their new prime minister is going to be, who's a, a, a man called Rishi Sunak. And uh, he has a background in, in finance, and he's quite a, a pragmatic and serious uh, politician, I think, in contrast to some of the recent prime ministers that they've had in, in the United Kingdom. So in, in a way, I'm strangely um, optimistic that a lot of the issues um, that they have had in part have been driven by uh, the Brexit process over the last six years, which separated them from the largest trading zone in the the planet, if you like, which was the European Union's population of 500 million. And um, when they when they exited their economy was about 90% the size of the German economy and now it's 70% of the German German economy so they have suffered obviously because of the pandemic Uh, And war in in Europe, as all the rest of us have suffered, but they have this extra thing of of Brexit, which has made it more difficult for supply chains to function uh, between Britain and continental Europe, which was their major uh, trading um, partner. So I'm beginning to detect a bit of realism coming into the conversation in the United Kingdom as regards their economic um, prospects. And the real effects of Brexit on supply chains and import and export, they've realised that many many British companies have uh, gone and set up uh, branches in the in the European Union, which has taken investment out of, out of uh, the United Kingdom. Um, a lot of small businesses in the United Kingdom have had to give up, give up exporting to the European Union because it's just too much too much trouble. So I would anticipate that with the the new um, Prime Minister, although he, he he was a supporter of Brexit, I think his his version of Brexit will perhaps be different. And they're probably going to look to maybe a renegotiation of the deal that Boris Johnson um, negotiated with the European Union, which was quite a, a hard Brexit, if you like, where they exited the customs union, they exited the single market, as well as exiting, you know, politically the, the European Union. I think this new guy may look over the next uh, couple of years maybe to come to an arrangement where they may uh, become closer to the European Union in terms of customs union and maybe even the single market. And that will resolve a lot of uh, supply chain issues, practical supply chain issues, say in moving uh, parts, particularly the automotive industry in the United Kingdom is very interwoven um, with the uh, parts supply, supply chain across the whole of Europe. So if they were to come closer and make some new arrangements uh, within the uh, the Common Customs Union. That would certainly facilitate trade in that regard. Also with food imports, they're very dependent on food imports. Um, They're probably the industrialized country in the world that that is most dependent on, on food imports from abroad. Uh, and a lot of that kind of fresh produce comes to them from uh, continental Europe, and a, a lot from Ireland as well, in terms of um, cheeses and dairy and meat and so on. So yeah, I'm I'm strangely after the after the the roller coaster ride, I'm I'm slightly more optimistic uh, with regard to the Europe with with regard to United Kingdom and its relationship with Europe and the positive effect that they may have on supply chains as we go into the next couple of years and, and beyond. So how, how has the, how has that looked to you guys from the U S looking, looking at it from your vantage point?
2: Well, it definitely, uh, definitely has looked chaotic (laughs) as far (laughs) as what's been going on lately. Um, although, you know, just in talking with, um, talking with you as well as other clients, Uh, in the uh, Europe region. You know, it seemed like supply chains were continuing on. Uh, However, uh, you know, I think that as how you described the future of the UK and um, Europe working closely together, I think is what's going to end up happening. Because I think, as I was talking about reshoring, nearshoring, friendly shoring, certainly the UK and Europe are... Friendly shores, uh, as compared with all these risks that are out there between Russia, Ukraine, China, uh, you know, and all these other issues going on. So I think your, I personally think your your more positive view at the moment is likely to hold.
0: Yeah. So we kind of got lots of short term challenges and really kind of uh, impactful um, unforeseen events, but we've got some long term optimism, I think, to bring to the the conversation. So, you know, guys, as always, uh, we're beaten by the by the clock here on Interlinks yet again. So um, many thanks to you both for being here. Thanks again, Diane. Thanks, Lisa.
1: Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Lisa.
0: Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. You're very welcome. And thanks also to our listeners for tuning in once again. So until next time, uh, keep well and stay safe.